Willie's obsessed with the Grinch right now. She mm-hmm. said, but mama, why the Grinch stole Christmas? I was like, I don't know, kid. I mean, his heart was small. I, I don't really know what to say <laughs> to that. That is what they say. His heart was small. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And welcome to Fuck Off, I'm Reading, a podcast we like to think of as a tiny little book group where we talk about books and bookish things, and sometimes other things, like ceramics. Ceramics. I'm Emily. Hi, I'm Amy. What are you reading today, Emily? I am reading The Lying Life of Adults by Mm. Elena Ferrante. I always say her name wrong, and I think I just said it wrong again. I always want to say Elena, but I think it's Elena. I think that's Elena. Right. I like Elena. Elena. Okay. Yes. She is an Italian novelist. And one thing I can definitely say about this book is it is unsettling. It is classic Ferrante, which if you don't know Ferrante, you're probably going to know more than you've ever wanted to know about her by the time this podcast is over in that she has been one of my author obsessions for many, many years. But Before we get to that, this book, The Lying Life of Adults, is her most recent book. It came out in 2020. And what I can say about it is that it sucks you in. And at the same time, you also kind of want to close your eyes. It's a little bit of that train wreck thing where... Ooh, it's fiction, yes? It's fiction, yes. Okay. You want to... You're totally engrossed and you want to keep going, but you also sort of want to close your eyes because it's a little bit terrifying. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I'm so intrigued. Yes. Well, I didn't pick it up right away. I mean, it just came out in in 2020, so it is brand new, but I put off reading it for the whole reason, which I'm sure others are familiar with when you love a book and you almost don't want to read another one by that author because you're afraid it won't be as good, right? Totally. Yes. Yes. So that is why I put it off. So like, I felt that way after The Power of One. And yes. to this day, I have still never read another book by Bryce Courtney. Just hasn't um, Yeah, his other book is on my to-read list and it's been there for, it's in my, on my Goodreads shelf. It's been there for, I don't know, eight years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs> right. I don't want to hate it. <laughs> the Power of One is just, it's, you can't follow it up. So, no. Anyway, this is the same. I did not, I was nervous because I have been truly obsessed with this author and her previous books for years. And so I just was like, oh God, another one. Oh God, oh God, do I read it? Do I not read it? I don't know. But I decided to read it. So in just the basic story, uh, it's set in in Italy, in Naples. Like I said, she's an Italian author, so her work is translated. And the basic overarching picture is that it's a coming-of-age story, the loss of innocence sort of time in um, a person's life, the moment you are suddenly, well, not necessarily a moment, but like a moment or like a time period when you go from a child to no longer being a child. Okay. And that's sort of where this thing starts. And then it sort of encapsulates that time period. So it's set in the 1990s and basically story of this girl. She is, comes from a fairly wealthy background in Naples. And she at, I think I want to say around maybe 12 or 13, right? Is that super awkward time of adolescence 
uh, overhears her parents talking. She's an only child and kind of like a, um, you know, her parents kind of dote on her and she is cute and smart and all these things. And so she overhears her parents having this conversation where her dad says that she, the daughter is starting to remind him of his sister. And she, the girl is just kind of horrified because of this sister has been like estranged from her dad for years and years. And oh. she's talked about it as the horrible sister, the horrible aunt or whatever. And so when she hears that her dad says she's becoming like that, she sort of freaks out like, oh my God, like, what does this mean? And so she comes obsessed with finding out about this aunt, who she is, what she's all about. Why is she so terrible? Why does her dad, um, you know, not talk to her and all of this stuff. And so that's sort of the jumping off point. She ends up kind of searching for this aunt, which leads her to sort of this different side of her dad, which leads her to this different side of her parents and things go from there. And Mm. um, you get the whole thing about, you know, family, desire, betrayal. I mean, the title is The Lying Life of Adults. So, you know, that's going to be a right. And um, one of the things I love about Ferrante is that she, her writing is super intense, but her, when you read like interviews that she's done, she's also just a super intense person all around, it sounds like. So Hmm. this guy writes this article about her in The Guardian and he's talking about Ferrante in addition to The Lying Life of Adults. And he says, Ferrante is a superb anal- analyst of the ways in which families, despite their best intentions, distort children's lives or propel them in unwished for directions. These somehow eerily repeat what parents themselves have tried to repress. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Like, okay. You know, obviously parents are trying to do their very best, but they're flawed humans, just like we're all flawed humans, which is why most of us are in therapy to get over our childhoods. Raise your hand if you're in therapy. Nobody can see you. It's a podcast. <laughs> our hands are up, so it's all no, I know. <laughs> So here is this quote that um, Elena Ferrante says in this 2002 interview, which is another one. Like this whole, this quote, even reading it, like gives me anxiety. Listen to this. It says, To tolerate existence, we lie, and we lie about, above all, to ourselves. Fronte observes that falsehoods protect us, mitigate suffering, allow us to avoid the terrifying moment of serious reflection. They dilute the horrors of our time. They even save us from ourselves. And then he says, for Ferrante, the falsehoods that people tell one another and themselves in everyday life, I am happy, I love my wife, I don't know what I was doing, are lovely tales or petty lies. At moments when guilt and shame threaten our conscience, when they shake our deepest beliefs about who we are, petty lives stop us from looking too closely at ourselves. Oh, fuck. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm I'm going and not think about that too much because again, that gives me anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. Okay, I'm totally reading this book now. I'm hooked. That is like an intro to her in general. I mean, this book and her in general. And I will say that I'm not done with the book yet, but it's definitely in line with the other books of hers I've read. I feel like I could definitely, if I didn't know who wrote this book, I just picked it up out of the blue and started reading it. I would be about one page in and be like, oh, this is Ferrante. It's just, it's how she writes. I've never read anybody else who writes like her. Is this a good, like a beginner book for someone who's never read her before? Or is there another, this might be a better conversation for later in the episode, but 
you know, would, would you start here or is there? Yeah, yeah. that's a really good question. I have a hard time answering that and I can explain why, but it almost depends on what you're, what you're in for. I think this is a more accessible book. Uh, It's certainly a faster read in that it's a one-off and not a quartet like the others. Okay. But I don't know if somebody who wasn't already sort of obsessed with Ferrante, I don't know. We can talk more about that later because um, our discussion about Elena Ferrante is not over yet. But The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante, her newest book that I am almost done with, but not quite. Okay. What are you reading? I just finished this book called Supreme Inequality. The Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Um, Yeah. So it was just came out in February 2020. And Adam Cohen is the author. And if you don't know, he's an author and a lawyer. He's a um, and a journalist. And he was also the um, former assistant of the editorial page of the New York Times. And now he works in Governor de Blasio's office. Oh, okay. He's been around the block and um, he's written a handful of things. This is the first thing that I've read by him. And I mean, he wrote it in February, 2020. So he had no idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was going to die all of a sudden before the election. And then they were going to push through a Supreme Court nomination. I mean, you know, none of that had happened or did he know that it was going to happen? No, but I think that it also, you know, if, if that happening and the circumstances around that happening got you to thinking like, oh, shit, everybody's talking about what a big deal this is. Like, let's figure out why, like for me, I was like, I need to figure out why this is such a big deal. I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't really know, no, no, what, what a big deal it was. So I picked up this book and he, he talks about the personal histories of justices and how justices from a more modest background, they tend to show more empathy for the 99%, which makes sense. Right. Um, but sadly, a lot of the people on the Supreme Court, and we've talked about this, I think, in a different episode, um, you know, people who come from modest backgrounds oftentimes don't get to take those paid, unpaid internships. They don't get to clerk for the circuit judges that other people get to clerk for. Like they don't get to do those things that give you a leg up. And so it's not often that someone from an extremely modest background uh, gets to be, to rise to the Supreme Court. So sadly, there aren't a lot of people from modest backgrounds. And if they are, they're older, right? Because they had to like prove themselves and go around the block a few more times before somebody who had the same kind of, or who had those opportunities earlier in life because they came from privilege. Um, So going through the personal histories of the justices that were, that were appointed after um, or nominated after Earl Warren retired in 1969, really gives you, gave me a view into why the Supreme Court looks like and votes the way that it did slash does. So I liked that a lot too. But also the chapters, they're organized by, so it starts off with education and how this Supreme Court decision and this one and this one and this one, it went against the best interest of the kids. Right. And so like, and this is why, and this is why, and this is why. And then um, they go through campaign finance and how these campaign finance laws that were established and then the Supreme Court overturned them later, how those things have created the, 
you know, everything up through Citizens United created this unfair uh, landscape of political fundraising. And the central point of the whole book is to show that the Supreme Court has gone from being a champion of poor people and the underprivileged to working to protect uh, the wealthiest people and corporations. So very much doing this thing where he's doing like a critical analysis. Yes. uh, Of the, but he's doing it by topic, which seems like it would be a way more accessible format than just going through the years and saying, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. If he's doing it by subject area, that sounds exactly. That sounds kind of Yeah. Well, I kind of got into the weeds there. What I should have said in the beginning was the reason it starts with Earl Warren is because he was trying, his court was trying to push for the, for the poor to be what they call a discrete and insular minority. And a discrete and insular minority are like women, minorities, like people who are protected by the law as being part of, of a class. Right. And so he wanted poor people to be protected as a class in the same way that minorities and women are. And that's so interesting. So when he, when he goes through and categorizes each chapter in education, these are the things that that basically ruled against the poor. And this is how poor kids lost. And then in campaign finance, this is how the poorest candidates lost. And then with workers, this is how workers lost, like the workers lost and the corporations won. And then there's a whole chapter on corporations and how corporations, and because of the campaign finance laws, were able to funnel all of this money into getting Supreme Court uh, decisions that benefited them instead of their workers. And then finally, the last chapter is on criminal justice. And that chapter, if you haven't read um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, I definitely recommend that. Um, but this kind of gives you a little precursor into how criminal justice reform um, really is just squashed by the Supreme Court over and over again. And I came away from this book feeling like, oh, holy cow, I had no idea how much the deck was stacked against poor people, like from the, from the beginning. Um, and it's, it's a real bummer that we've trended that way because it hasn't always been that way. So tell um, me again, what's the title? It's called Supreme Inequality. Okay. The Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Okay, so supreme inequality. So I was thinking that it, I didn't at first pick up that it was going to be um, geared toward or focused on the issue of poverty. So this is poverty in America and how all these different areas of Supreme Court decisions have affected poverty in America. Yes, how poor how poor people have lost over and over and over again since 1969. Those assholes. I know, and it but it wasn't always like that. That's the point. Like Nixon really did a number on us. He 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 actually appointed four Supreme Court justices in his oh, time. For God's sakes. I think it should and, be for a president to be able to, to appoint more than two Supreme Court justices. Oh, and he, I mean, he he bullied people and got them to quit. He threatened their, I mean, went after everything families like wanted he basically wanted people who were white supremacists or and would say like when one of them was confirmed after two were denied finally the they uh 
<laughs> approved the third guy. And when he called him to congratulate him, he said, just keep being the same mean son of a bitch that I hear you are. Like that was what he wanted on the Supreme well, Court. That sounds a little bit too familiar at this moment in time. Well, that's the thing is it really resonates with today's politics. And as I'm reading it, I was just like, holy shit. Like this is exactly where we are again. It's really wild. Um, highly recommend it. And I just thought it was fascinating. I think my brain is a little on political overload because I have no way to change any of these things. And I'm just like completely outraged. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe we could flip flop because I'm feeling like I need to read that book next. And because it seems to tie in really well, not only with the current times, well, but also, um, I just started watching the, it's a four-part miniseries. I can't remember if it's HBO or Netflix or whatever it is, but it's about the Reagans. It's and called, right? Yeah. The so Reagans. I, I, was, I started watching it last night. So I was at my um, neighbors for our four-person Thanksgiving and I was telling them about this book and he was like, oh, you've got to watch it. I think it's on Showtime, he said, and I don't do Showtime, but I got to watch that. The last one that I watched was all about um, basically codifying racism through criminal justice and drugs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, oh my God. I had never seen it in that light before. I had no idea. So I'm Well, and that's our white privilege, right? The privilege that we have with our um, growing up and where also, we are and how we did. And also the total disconnect between, you know, these privileged politicians and actual oh. people and these privileged yeah. politicians who just speak this politician speak that doesn't actually mean anything and there's this great scene where Reagan goes down to like the inner city and he's going to speak to the real people and he starts to give his prepared statement and this woman in the crowd and the crowd is mostly african american this woman in the crowd is like you're talking to us talk to us like what do you have to say to us and he was completely blummy he he had no idea yeah it was really sad, actually. Supreme inequality. It's terrifying and infuriating. I can't recommend it more. <laughs> <laughs> really good for your mental health. Yeah, super good. <laughs> and so do you, um, are you still reading Mary Oliver poems before bed to try and calm yourself? <laughs> I really still am. <laughs> good job. Okay, so now I can't tell you how excited I am to go back to Elena Ferrante. The first thing I have to say is that that name is a pseudonym and not her real name. So she, they call her, uh, and I'm going to butcher this too. I've been even practicing this word and I don't think I can say it right. A pseudonymous Italian novelist. Is that right? Pseudonymous? I've never heard that word in my life. P-S-E-U-D-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. Pseudonymous. I think that's like a pseudonym. Like yeah. when you have a pseudonym and you're anonymous, pseudonymous. Yeah. Pseudonymous, yeah. It basically turns su- turns pseudonym into an adjective, I think. Oh, okay. Like Banksy. Like nobody knows his, he's an art, a street artist and oh, nobody knows oh. his real identity. Exactly. Okay, right. got it. Okay, okay, so the reason I know her, someone recommended this series to me. And this um, person is, this is funny, my... Let's see. My brother-in-law's father-in-law. 
<laughs> who is a voracious <laughs> reader and a super literary guy and uh, just really cool on top of it. He recommended these books to me years ago. And so I always read, if he recommends it, I'm usually in. So I started yeah. reading these and I had heard nothing about them. And even when you look at them, the covers, they're published by Europa. And so they have these very sort of Euro covers that are not very appealing to me. I saw the cover and I was like, really? Like this looks like it would be a Harlequin romance or something. Um, <laughs> But it's like this woman and she's on the beach and her hair is like flowing. And you know, Oh, like, no. The covers are terrible, I just have to say. But the stories are amazing. So it's this quartet of novels. They call them the Neapolitan novels. And they tell the story of these two girls who are these main characters throughout these four novels. Uh, and it starts set in Naples in 1944, so post-war Naples. And this, it's framed, it's a frame story. So it's framed by this woman, older woman, and she gets a call that her childhood best friend, whose name is Leela, has been missing for two weeks. And so oh. she gets this call and the call is from Leela's son. And so she asks him a couple of questions and then she says, um, okay, and they have this conversation, whatever. And then she starts to write this story. And so that's the frame. And then it goes back to when they were little kids, like early elementary age. And so the story starts when the girls are in elementary school, both of them are the smartest in their class. Elena is prim and quiet and like really studious. And then the other one, Leela, is wild and the girls call her mean, but she's also intrinsically brilliant. And so- they are very different types of people, but they both are smart. And so they're drawn to each other and they become friends. And so the whole first novel is called My Brilliant Friend. You'll also sometimes hear the series referred to as the My Brilliant, My, the My Brilliant Friend series. Um, so the whole thing's set in their poor neighborhood. They're poor. It's really sort of rough and tumble neighborhood. And there's all these, um, they live in basically in tenements, these apartment buildings really close together. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. There's all these Italian names and these families and there's family feuds and all these intertwined sort of backstories that are, it's actually kind of hard to keep up with, but it's kind of fascinating too. And so um, you get this sense that these two little girls are like these, you know, it's back in the day when, you know, the opposite of helicopter parenting was the norm. Yeah, sure. And, basically like throw their kids out the door and say, just go play and come back by dinner. And totally. so you really get the sense that these two little girls are very much trying to survive in this really violent, like dusty, hard, mean world. There's like, it's a story of their childhood, but there are no stuffed animals and playdates in this childhood. It is like gotcha. rough. Okay. So that's the whole kicking off point. That's how you meet these two girls. And so my brilliant friend is when they're, uh, you know, little kids. And that was published in 2011. Okay. And I think I probably read it pretty shortly after that, I have to say. And then um, the next one came out in 2012, the story of a new name. And that's when one of them gets married. And then the next one is called those who leave and those who stay. And that's 2013. And then there's a story of a lost child comes out in 2014. So just this, oh. and they're not, these are long books too. These are not little short little novellas. These are like 500 pages each, maybe even more. They're long books. So I can't imagine what it took to write these books. My God. So she'd been an artist, Ferrante had been a writer for a long time, an Italian writer and well-known, but not like famous. So these books sort of like propelled her into fame. They've been, they've sold 10 million copies. They've been translated into 40 different 
countries. And wow. So they're a big deal. And of course they were a big deal in, in the U S for people who I shouldn't say it for like <laughs> people like me who got obsessed with them. So, yeah. but so they have like, a cult following, like not only here, but abroad, like yes. especially yeah. abroad cult following. Totally. So, but the thing is, I have to say for all my obsession with them and with Ferrante, I have been 100% unsuccessful in getting any of my reader friends to not only just love these books like I do, but to, I'm pretty sure even finish the first one. Man. I know it's the saddest thing because I'm pretty good at recommending books to people. I have to say. Right. Yeah. You, you're not someone who recommends things flippantly. No, no. I, if I don't think I can think of a good match, I just won't recommend anything, but I, these have, I have tried to get these to my tried and true readers and it's been a fail every time. And it was instantly obsessed with these books. And I've never been very good at being able to articulate why, but when I do the research, it it starts, it makes sense. Like I've been able to kind of clarify it for myself as I was, as I was reading about other people clarifying it, but it's just sad that I've never gotten, even my sister, I was the other day, we were talking about what books you're reading. And I told her I was reading the lying a life of adults by the lady who wrote the, my brilliant friend Brooks books. And my sister was like, Oh God, not those again. Uh, (laughs) I thought you were off this wagon. Jeez. Yeah. I was like, she was like, Oh, those are just so boring. And I just wanted to cry. I was like, Oh God. Okay. But I am happy to say I'm in decent company because they do have some pretty famous fans. Um, Jonathan Franzen is a fan. Who's Jonathan Uh, Franzen? Jonathan Franzen, the author who wrote, uh, or wait, yeah, who wrote, um, oh, geez. He writes those really long, um, just blanking on the the titles. He wrote, he writes those really long epic stories. Oh, for God's sakes. That's Ah. okay. We can edit this out. I'm going to have to put in the show notes, <laughs> but Jonathan Franzen, um, Elizabeth Strout, who's the, okay. Oh, yep. Oh, no Kitteridge. Yeah. Um, Michelle Obama is a fan. Oh, oh. as is Hillary Clinton, who okay. said, quote, the books are just hypnotic. I read the first one. I could not stop reading it or thinking about it. And I was like, same me too. I was absorbed and I've never been able to explain why, but so I had to read what the critics were saying so that I could better understand my own obsession with these. And they were completely able to put into words what I could not. And they all said the same thing. I mean, they were all in line. And this was, these were reviewed by all the New York times, Atlantic, the guardian, all the big stuff reviewed them. And um, they basically all the same, say all the same thing, which is they all identify the depth of emotion that she portrays in her characters as the most striking element of the story. And that's true. And I'm always, I'm a character driven reader for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But these go beyond, beyond that. And so she said, this is a quote that I love from the New Yorker and it's talking about her writing and she, and it says, but what is thrilling about her novels is that in sympathetically following her character's extremities, her own writing has no limits. Fronte is willing to take every thought forward to its most radical conclusion and backward to its most radical birthing. So it's like, she just, she pushes the limits of how much people mm-hmm. are willing and even able to reveal about themselves, but to themselves. Yeah. And he goes way, she just goes farther, I think, than most people are even comfortable with, which is part of the draw, which is back to the whole train wreck thing. Like you almost right. don't but you also can't look away. <laughs> oh, so that's so compelling. Like I am, I'm just like, 
I'm kicking myself for like, I don't know, 10 years ago when you told me to read this and I didn't. <laughs> well, I, if you do decide to try it and you hate it, just please don't tell me because I, don't I won't, I mm-hmm. I'll never bring it up again. I'll be like, <laughs> what book? Elena? Who? I don't even know what you mean. Thank you. I couldn't take yeah. it. I couldn't take it. Um, so I sort of just geeked out on all the things I could find about that I thought really just caught the essence of what the stories are about. I mean, they're stories. They're, they, you know, the girls grow up and they have relationships and they get out of relationships and whatever. But it's more like the, it's more the writing that is really so compelling to me. And a writer in The Guardian says that Ferrante is a writer with an almost evangelical following. Her quartet of Neapolitan novels have sold close to a million copies in the UK and 1.8 million in Italy. When readers finish one book, they tend to devour all four, memorized by the depiction of a poor suburb and its characters over course of many decades. But that invented world of a few families living cheek by jowl in post-war Italy is both exotically foreign and yet with its universal themes of poverty, violence, alliances, and aspiration astonishingly familiar. And that was exactly my experience. I mean, I could not stand it until I got the next one. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so um, this same writer says, um, the series owes its success to Ferrante's ability to lay bare universal emotions. It's a story that somehow belongs to everyone. I found myself, even though I'm a man, in Elena and Lila's shoes. It's like a mirror. You can reflect yourself in that story. This is kind of a miracle that happens very rarely. And I was surprised to hear that a man say that because to me, these are very mm. female novels. I mean, there are male characters, but they're not that interesting. It's all about the women. Yeah, I was going to say that's evidence of really amazing writing. Not only do I totally love these books, but there is also a scandal involved. Ooh, hooray. All right. Just when it couldn't get better. I know. A scandal, yes. So um, because she is a pseudonymous, did I say that right? Yeah. Writer? I don't think I did say it right, actually. Pseudo, pseudonymous. That's it. Pseudonymous, pseudonymous writer. Um, the controversy is that people have been trying to find out who she is in real life. Well, sure. That, I mean, that's part of it, right? Right. And so, but she has said that books, once they are written, have no need of their authors and says she's repeatedly argued that anonymity is a precondition of her work and that keeping her true name out of the spotlight is the key to her writing process, which I think is interesting. It does sort of give well, you a freedom as an author, right? Not to have to identify yourself. Well, but also if she's delving into these things that you won't even like um, admit to yourself about yourself and going that dark into these characters, or not dark, deep into these characters, you know, maybe, maybe she feels like she can't be vulnerable if people know who she is. Like she's not, she wouldn't be able to be vulnerable enough to like make these characters seem real because she would be guarded in her own self. Great. So it gives her this like freedom to really go for it, which I feel like she does. So this is what happened. So March, 2016, a novelist and professor, I'm going to butcher all these Italian names, uh, a novelist and professor named Marxo Santagata analyzed her books and based on setting details, portrayals of Italian politics, decided that the real Ferrante was a guy named um, Marcel Marmo, who is a professor. And so this guy comes out and says, oh yes, the real Ferrante is this guy. And then that was March of 2016. Then in October of 2016, a different 
person, an investigative reporter named Claudio Gotti, analyzed financial records, royalty payments, and real estate transactions, and decided that the real Ferrante was this woman named Anita Rea, who is an Italian translator. And oh. was convinced that, and so he put he put this out, you know, into the media that that's actually it's actually this person. And then, so that was October 2016. Then September 2017, a team of scholars, I think they said there were like six different people from different areas. They analyzed a bunch of stuff and they decided that, that the author was actually Italian author and journalist Domenico Starnone, who happens to be Anita Raja, the translator's husband. Oh. No, controversy and drama, which I would argue that's ridiculous because I do not think there's any way a man could write these books. I just, I just don't think so. Well, so maybe they're a tag team. Maybe, but I think they should mind their own beeswax. I mean, a writer doesn't owe their author or excuse me, their readers anything. Like she doesn't want to identify herself. She shouldn't have to. And these other people are saying like, oh, you know, she owes her readers. We should know this. It's part of, you know, how the books will be interpreted, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, bullshit. I don't know. Oh, no, that's crap. Yeah. Uh, This British novelist in responding to this said that the, the pursuit to discover the real Elena Ferrante is a disgrace and although also pointless. A writer's truest self is the books that they write. Oh, totally agree. That's a great point. And then this one, this writer from The Guardian denounced the investigation as malicious and sexist, saying at the bottom of this so-called investigation into Ferrante's identity is an obsessional outrage at the success of a writer, a female writer, Uh who decided to write, publish, and promote her books on her own terms. She went on to say that the desire to uncover Ferrante's identity constitutes an act of sexism in itself. Oh, well, that's another damn good point. Right? You know, I actually thought that when you were saying that she's anonymous and and writing under a pseudonym, I'm like, why would she pick to be a female? Probably a white man. Probably. You would have to call bullshit on it right away because wait till you read it. The man. Could yeah. And that's not an insult to a man to men. It's just the nature of the writing is so like viscerally female. Yeah. There's just no way. And I guess it is possible. So there's this article in the New Yorker where they say, um, the New York Times praised the visceral immediacy of Ms. Ferrante's novels, their ability to capture with passion and precision the intensity of her heroine's inner lives. The material is intimate and often shockingly candid. Child abuse, divorce, motherhood, wanting and not wanting children, the tedium of sex, the repulsions of the body, the narrator's desperate struggle to retain a cohesive identity within a traditional marriage and amid the burdens of child rearing. The novels present themselves like case histories, full of flaming rage, lapse, failure, and tenuous psychic success. I'm like just floored that I never picked these up. This is another, I I could read quotes all day about this, but I think this is my last one. So same article. These books have blood of murder and menstruation, as well as tears and sweat. Men do violence against women and women against men. Women are betrayed and also betray themselves and others. In all of Ferrante's writing, there is also a lot of visceral, often unromantic sex. It would be accurate, although perhaps reductive, to call these books feminist. 
It is enough to mm. say they bring a scrutiny and intense rare in contemporary literature or in any literature for that matter to exploring an intimate, often excruciating detail, the full experience of being a woman and in the Naples novels, the deep complexity of female friendship. Okay, so that makes another case for the author being a female. Right. I want to sort of want to read this quote. I said that was my last quote, but this one really is my last quote, I I swear. Um, (laughs) Hey, I'm interested. I think this is great. I've never heard of this and I'm like totally into it. Yes, I'm so glad. Okay, so this is a quote that she says about men. Let me just preface that this is Ferrante talking, not me. So she did an (laughs) interview and the interviewer asked her about her male characters and she said this. I like men who use their strength discreetly to help you live without too many words, without sentimentality, without expecting compensation. Real understanding of women seems to me the highest application of the male's intelligence and capacity for love. It's, (laughs) I know, (laughs) it's something rare. I don't want to talk here about rough, violent men whose latest incarnation is the truly vulgar, aggressive types on social media and TV. It seems to me more useful to talk about cultured men, our companions in work and study. The majority continue to treat us like charming animals, giving themselves credit just for playing with us a little. A minority have superficially learned a formula for being, quote, friends of women, unquote, and want to explain what you have to do to save yourself. But as soon as you make it clear that you that you need to save yourself by yourself, the civilized patina cracks and the old intolerable little man emerges. Oh, my God. Amazing. I know. Even her quotes are like intense and like to the core. And you're like, oh my God, yeah. I don't know if I really want to read that again. Uh, that one I want to read again. That A plus. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really intense. So she is a phenomenon. Her books are a phenomenon. There is controversy about her and I'm not even done yet. What do you mean you're not done yet? Like you... I've got more to say. So, oh, <laughs> yeah. You imagine my delight when in 2018, HBO turned these into a series. No. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh. You should see my husband makes so much fun of me because when I, you know, they were advertised on HBO for quite a while before. And I, every time they came across, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. When is that going to start? When is that going to start? So they've only done season one and two, but they have already um, been what do you call that picked up or whatever for season three. And the whole thing is filmed in Italy in it's a, like a combination with Italian producers and stuff and American producers. And the two girls that they picked that were cast to play the leads, these two Italian girls have zero acting experience. Oh, I love that. I love non-actors and lead roles. It's my favorite thing. Yes. And they are so freaking good. So, um, so, okay. Real quick though. You said that these books are over 500 pages each. And so people listening are wondering, like, can I just watch the show? Well, that's a question that I have. I don't know if I would really be interested in someone watching the show who hasn't read the books to tell me if the show works, if you hadn't read the books. Right. That's, I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Like, I can't imagine that you're going to get the same depth and that raw feeling in all of the characters just by watching a show. Like I, well, I mean, they're actually, I feel like they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, obviously there's a lot you can't do, but they did a really good job of it. And the one scene from the HBO series that's that strikes me is there's this scene where when the girls are in fourth grade, they go up to fourth grade. And then after that, it's pretty common in poor neighborhoods, I guess, for, for kids not to continue in school, your parents have to start paying more for you to go oh. on. 
fourth There's grade. There's nothing much good after fourth grade anyway. Yeah, right. Who needs it? Yeah. So <laughs> Elena's family, she wants to continue to do it and keep going. And so, and so does um, Leela, but Leela's family doesn't want to pay for it. They're super poor. And her dad just won't even, you know, she's a girl. She needs to support the family. She doesn't need to be educated, that whole line. And so, and I remember this from the book, but there's a scene in the movie, Leela's little body getting thrown through a window and landing in the street. And that she was arguing with her dad and saying she wanted to keep going to school, keep going to school. And he's like, don't say that again. Don't ever ask me that again. And then poor she, she, he throws her out the window. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's not something that like, you know, the adults around are just like, hmm, and they just keep on walking because that's just how things are. It's just really sort of violent setting. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like they did a good job of that in the, in the series, but again, okay. I what somebody thinks who hasn't read it. Cause I have, you know, I will admit I'm a little bit biased already, but right. it did get, has gotten critical acclaim. It has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. And it said, one quote I found says, my brilliant friend is an expansive epic that gleans rapturous beauty from the most desolate of circumstances, but it is the intimacy between the central duo and the remarkable performances that bring them to life. The audience will remember most vividly. I, oh, and the other thing about, what, <laughs> well, okay, maybe not. I guess this isn't necessarily just from the, from the movie. This is from um, the books too, but now just to underscore that it's actually is a thing or these books are a thing for more people than just me, that many people from mostly it said South America are going around Naples to see places from the books. So people are like, Oh, there's a tour. It says thousands of tourists have visited the area because of the book series. A thriving industry has sprung up to meet demand. Ferrante tours ranging from half a day to six days. Take people around promising an authentic Neapolitan experience. Wow. We definitely know that it's not just you. Okay, and then the last thing, there is a Spotify playlist based on the HBO series. Oh, man, you can just really hit all of your, yeah. um, you can just really plug in and, and like totally binge. If you're a binger, if you're a binger of things, this might be your next scenario. Yeah, uh, I'm raising my hand. I am a binger of things. Yes, yes. You read, you binge the books, you binge the series, you binge the um, soundtrack good stuff. Yeah. That is what I have for the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. Elena Ferrante, if you're listening, you've got a fan and a fan in a fan in the making. I'm going to binge this weekend. And if you're listening right now as a regular listener, not a famous author who listens to our podcast, um, <laughs> you can email us if you have questions or um, comments about this. If you are a fellow junkie and you want to, um, you know, unpack some of this with Emily, I was zero help in unpacking. So um, <laughs> if you want to come unpack some of this, uh, feel free to give us a shoot us an email. Or if anybody has seen the series without reading the book, I would love to know what the experience of watching the series was having not read the books first. Email us at Amy and Emily at fuckoffimreading.net and let us know what your experience was. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Bye.